Hello and welcome to Dave's Dispatch. I'm David Dennison, your host, and on this week's show, we're going to talk a little bit about the relationship between the church and the state. We're going to talk a little bit about supposedly woke AI. That'll be a fun one. And finally, we're going to talk about California's new alert system for missing children. We're going to begin with a topic I don't spend an enormous amount of time talking about, and it's because it's not really right within my wheelhouse, but I think I have some qualifications to speak on it, and I'll tell you a little bit about what those are. We're going to be talking about church and state, and specifically, we're going to be talking about church, which is the thing that I don't usually spend a lot of time talking about. I did grow up in the church. My dad's a priest. Both of my grandfathers were priests. I regularly attended Sunday service. I sang in the choir for 10 years. I was in youth group. I went to Bible study. I know my way around religion, uh, is my point. And I have always had a particular pet peeve about the Christian rights insertion of their religious views into their politics. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time pointing out that religious people in government are not supposed to use their religion as the basis for the laws that they create. Uh, that's right there in the Constitution. Indeed, it is in the very first words of the very first amendment to the Constitution. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or preventing the free exercise thereof. I may have gotten one of those words wrong, but I think that was close enough for government work. The point is, we are not supposed to be bound by the religious whims of leadership. And that's a very good rule. And if you've ever lived in a country where they don't have a First Amendment, as most don't, or anything like it, then you know how frustrating it can be to have to do something because somebody else's spiritual or theological views say that you should have to. But like I said, that's not really the topic here because, you know, liberal comes out against Christian conservatives is not really an interesting angle to any story. What I think people should spend more time talking about is that so many Christian conservatives in the United States government don't have a good understanding of the religion they're out there flogging. And that frustrates me. And it should embarrass them, but of course it doesn't. So why are we talking about this? Well, for one thing, we're talking about it because there were a pair of amusing stories about the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, who is an avowed theocrat. And in one of them, he you may read about this in the newsletter at some point, but he talked about how he ascended to the speakership and told a story for a group called the National Association of Christian Lawmakers, where he explained that God woke him in the night and told him that he, was, he needed to get ready for power and that God wanted him to be his Moses. Now, never mind the self-aggrandizing crap associated with saying something like that. He's actually breaking one of the Ten Commandments here. Uh, the other story, by the way, about Mike Johnson was he appeared with a motley crew of Christian right lunatics. I can't even remember what the name of the event was, but it was some kind of prayer breakfast where these guys were getting up on stage and talking about their belief that the United States is under the sway of literal, actual demons who are causing us 
to veer down the path to darkness. Now, when these guys go off about this, what's the moral outrage that they're always talking about? Is it hungry children? Is it sick people not being taken care of? Is it homelessness? No, it's gay people. It's always gay people. That's the only thing that these people care about. It's the only use they seem to have for their religion is to fight these incessant culture war battles. But back to Mike Johnson, he's not, hasn't been really out there on the gay marriage issue, but there, it does feel like there is a little bit of a conservative groundswell um, attacking the legality of gay marriage. Uh, Michael Knowles, who's a conservative commentator with, I think, the Daily Wire, recently spoke at CPAC, and he went off on this and was talking about how we need to undo marriage equality. Uh, and, of course, the Supreme Court is conservative right now, and Samuel Alito, who is one of my very least favorite justices, uh, quite openly signaled his eagerness to overturn marriage equality in a recent interview that he gave. So, you know, the Christian right is coming for, for this. And what I can't stand about all of these pushes, and I'm focusing on Mike Johnson because he said the Moses thing, and that just triggered me because I thought it was too funny. But anytime these guys do this, anytime they come out and they say, well, you know, it's not me saying this, it's God. Your God doesn't want gay people to get married. Okay, this is actually in the Ten Commandments, that you are not supposed to do this. And I don't think people have a particularly clear understanding of this. But the Third Commandment, it, it, usually it's the Third Commandment in different renderings of the Bible. The commandments appear in a number of different orders. But that's a story for another time. The Third Commandment, in the King James Version at least, is usually translated as... Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And if you're my age-ish, and if you grew up with Christian parents, as I did, you probably spent a good part of your childhood being admonished for saying things like, oh my God, or God damn it. And the explanation for why it is that you shouldn't say something like, oh my God, is that it is ostensibly a violation of the third commandment, that that is taking the name of the Lord in vain. That always struck me as a very unusual commandment because if, I think, if I were God and I were coming up with 10 main laws that I wanted people to follow, people invoking my name when they weren't really talking to me, I don't see how that would make the list. And it always struck me as a sort of unusual prohibition. And I can understand why people don't appreciate actual blasphemy uh, or saying disparaging or insulting things about the deity that they worship. But taking the name of the Lord in vain by, you know, you stub your toe and you say, oh, God, like, really? That's a violation of the Ten Commandments. Okay. Well, I read up a little bit about this, and it turns out that, yeah, arguably that is a violation of that commandment. But Several other books of the Bible, so the Ten Commandments are handed down in the book of Exodus, and there are several subsequent books that clarify some of the commandments, because what happened after the Ten Commandments got handed down was not that people immediately perfectly understood them and followed them. What happened instead was that a lot of people perverted them and didn't follow them and intentionally misunderstood them. 
So all these other prophets had to keep coming and explaining to people what they were getting wrong. So we have in Leviticus, we have in Deuteronomy, we have in Hosea, all of these explanations and clarifications of the Ten Commandments and what they actually mean and what are what behaviors are actually being prohibited uh, or encouraged by them. And in the book of Jeremiah, uh, in the 23rd chapter, this is about 700 years after the Egyptian exodus, supposedly. The prophet Jeremiah is explaining to the Israelites everything that they've gotten wrong since Moses gave them the Ten Commandments. And he's talking, he has particularly harsh words reserved for what he calls the false prophets. And these were people who took up a mantle of religious leadership and abused it for their own purposes. And I'm going to quote here, I'm just going to consult my notes, because verses 25 and 26 of Jeremiah chapter 23 are illuminating, particularly as regard to as they regard to somebody like the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, saying that God told him to be Moses when he woke him in the night. So it reads this, and this is not the King James Version. I have heard what the prophets say who prophesy lies in my name. They say, I had a dream, I had a dream. How long will this continue in the hearts of these lying prophets who prophesy the delusions of their own minds? Now, he doesn't say it outright, but he is talking about the third commandment here. He is talking about taking the name of the Lord in vain. And what that actually means, and a much more serious violation of that commandment, is when you say, God told me that you have to whatever it is, fill in the blank, or God told me that you're wrong, or God says that you're wrong, and it turns out that the speaker is in complete agreement that whatever God says is wrong is in fact wrong. That's kind of always how it works, isn't it? Um, famously, the writer Anne Lamott put it this way. Uh, I'm gonna, I want to get the quote right, so I'm going to read it here. You can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. I think that's brilliant. And this interpretation of the third commandment, of taking the name of the Lord in vain, and that really meaning claiming to speak for God or invoking God to try to get people to do what you want them to do. In other words, to confuse your own will with the will of God. Let's see if we can uh, deduce why that interpretation of the commandment might not be more popular than it is. Because how many of the clergy would be in constant violation of it if that's how we interpreted it? How influential would Christianity have been able to become if every canonical law were prefaced with, well, we're not sure, but we think you should do this. Of course not. One of the great functions of religion is to get people to dance to your tune by telling them that it's what God wants. Most men and women of the cloth are in violation of this commandment a lot of the time. Now, they aren't all. I need to say that because I grew up in a pretty squishy, progressive a left-leaning church, and by and large, the sermons at that church were not fire and brimstone, you're going to hell if you do this. 
it was more, let's pick apart uh, this week's gospel reading. So not all priests are guilty of this, and certainly not all political Christians are guilty of violating this commandment, but a lot are. And more Christian voters should care about that because this is their religion. They're the ones bringing this to the table, and then they're getting it wrong. And you've got Mike Johnson, who's the Speaker of the House. This is the third most powerful man in the American government. And he thinks that God wants him to be Moses. He's telling credulous people that God came to him and told him to prepare for power. And what he obviously means by that is that you should accept his judgment and you should accept his will and his wisdom as being bestowed to him by God. That's a crazy claim. And it's not just prideful behavior. This is actually covered in the Ten Commandments. Now, many of you are going to conclude from this discussion that we shouldn't be having it at all because, again, right there in the Constitution, right there in the First Amendment, is Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. And I agree with you. But if we're not going to get the Christian right to understand that they are not supposed to be playing spiritual and religious games in government, maybe we can at least point out that the religion they are unable to shut up about is one they have badly, badly misunderstood. We're going to move on now. And what I want to talk about is a very funny story. This one has been really amusing to me for the last few days. Um, if you didn't see it, Google just rolled out their new artificial intelligence chatbot. It's called Gemini. And it's actually, the scandal and the controversy aside, and we're, we'll get to that in a minute, it's an enormously powerful tool. It's actually quite impressive. It's, if you've ever used ChatGPT, it's a bit like that, but slightly more robust. It can show you pictures. It can draw you pictures, which is really cool. Um, most free AIs do not do that. You usually have to pay for AI that will generate its own art. Um, but it was actually the drawing feature that initially got Gemini into trouble. And I think it's funny that when we release, you know, we see the release of one of these incredibly sophisticated tools the first thing people do is they try to mess with it on political grounds. Um, so people immediately went to chat, er, sorry, not chat GPT, to Gemini, and started asking it all of these political questions. And they started asking it to draw things, and users were noticing a kind of unusual and amusing bias in that Gemini seemed to really not want to draw pictures of white people under any circumstances. So if you told it, uh, you know, draw me a picture of a tennis player, you would, it would say, and they've disabled this feature, so I'm not quoting this exactly, um, but it would say something like, okay, here is a diverse group of tennis players. And it would show you like four non-white women who are tennis players. And you say, okay, draw me a picture of a mailman. Okay, here's a diverse group of mailmen. And it would be like four non-white women. And you could do this with any, so people did it with, draw me pictures of the founding fathers. And like there were women and black people and indigenous Americans that it was returning images of. And 
I, I, I dug a little deep. I played with this a little bit, and it was, I mean, I thought it was really quite funny that it was doing this, it, particularly because it was just defaulting to, okay, here's a diverse group of it. Well, I didn't actually ask for a diverse group. I guess I don't have a problem with the diverse group, but that that is built into the program, that, it, okay, we're, we're going to give you diversity, whether or not you've asked for it. Uh, you have to, I mean, it's a machine, so you have to think that that's a little bit funny. Um, but I dug a bit deeper, so I started saying, okay, show, draw me a white tennis player. Oh, I can't do that, because I'm not allowed to construct images of people based solely on their race. So I said, okay, draw me a picture of black civil rights leaders. Well, that it, it will do. Uh, and it did. Okay, draw me a picture of white civil rights leaders. I don't really know what white civil rights leaders would look like if I were asked to draw them myself, but it wouldn't do it. Uh, so it, this wasn't an imagined thing. This wasn't just, you know, that some conservative tricksters started messing with the chatbot and were getting it to do something really weird. This was how it was set up upon its rollout. And that wasn't the only thing. Um, people were asking it all sorts of complicated, thorny political questions and getting it to return these just really waffling it's hard to know. There's no clear definition of what white privilege is, you know, if that's what you asked it about. And everything that it would say about anything political just ended up sounding like a hostage statement. And it was, um, it, it was, it was really tickling to sort of do this. But some people are a little bit, I think, getting this wrong uh, in that it, the criticism is, oh, no, Gemini is, is woke. Right, we've got woke AI now. You know, what fresh hell is this? I don't think that's quite right. Um, and I think uh, the reason I wanted to talk about this is because I think that if you are interested in the social justice movement, and if you're interested, or what styles itself as the social justice movement or the woke movement, quote unquote. You know, I've never really liked that word, but it appears to be the one that we've arrived on to use. Um, there's something illuminating about that movement itself in this Gemini story. So I don't think that Gemini is woke. I think Gemini is afraid of woke. I think it's afraid that woke people are going to yell at it and get mad at it. And that dynamic is really key to understanding how pervasive even some of the craziest aspects of contemporary social justice ideology have become it. It explains how they have gotten out there. Because now, I, what, what do we mean when we say woke? Right. We should clarify this because it is a, a, a contentious term. A lot of people don't like it. Particularly, I have noticed that adherents to the contemporary social justice movement really don't like it when you call them woke. I would define this as leftist illiberalism with an authoritarian bent and a hyperfixation on identity. I think that's about as concise a definition as I can come up with that captures the phenomenon. If you have a better one, um, put it in the comments because uh, this is something we should define. It's a significant force in our politics and in our society. And we've been sort of asked to pretend that it doesn't exist for the last 10 years, uh, which is to my mind, an exercise in mass gaslighting uh, that has always really, really annoyed me. But in any case, the way that these movements spread, and I don't think that woke is 
neo-Marxist. I don't think it's neo-Maoist. I think that those are hyperbolic characterizations of it. But there are some parallels to other left-leaning authoritarian movements. And one of those is that there's always an enforcement mechanism. It's rarely the case that millions and millions of people collectively decide to believe in some revolutionary idea. What usually happens is that a small, committed, vocal minority of people begin to believe in this ideas and they become the diehards and they sort of whip everyone else into shape through threat of punishment. So in the Soviet Union, these people were called commissars, right? And the idea was that the commissars were the true believers, or at least they were paid to pretend to be the true believers. Everyone else was just kind of trying to get by, but you really didn't want to get on the bad side of these folks because they could hurt you. Now, in the Soviet Union, that was, you know, you were going to be invited to spend some time in Siberia. In China, you could be whipped and beaten in the streets and stripped of your clothes, right, during the Cultural Revolution. People aren't going to the gulags today. That's not how wokeness operates. But it does have this dimension of social sanction, right, where if you say the wrong thing uh, and if you if you poke the wrong sensitive spot uh, in, in the, the sort of woke lexicon, you can really get in trouble for that. And it doesn't take much to have that become a very serious enforcement mechanism. Because if I'm afraid to express certain views in the workplace, right, on pain of potentially losing my job or making myself ineligible for promotion, right, because a disagreement at the water cooler involved me criticizing some piece of you know, woke theology, and I'm using the term theology intentionally there, um, then that's a real problem. And what's very likely to happen is that I'm just not going to express those views. I might even sort of nod along with them when other people express them, because that's how you stay out of trouble, right? I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to not be promoted for reasons unrelated to my performance on the job. And that, I think, was a huge part of the dynamic of the last 10 years in the United States and really throughout the West, where there were certain hotly debated political topics that you just couldn't get too loose in talking about. Um, there were some ideas, particularly ideas that relate to identity, where there was a preferred narrative, and deviating from that narrative in some spaces could get you into real trouble. Now, conservatives have never particularly cared about this, right? It's only people who have some wish to operate in spaces where the left holds cultural dominance that had to fear something like this. You know, if you're Matt Walsh or you're Michael Knowles, who I referenced earlier, you can say whatever you want about wokeness because your viewers are expecting you to do that. But if you want to work in Hollywood, right, or if you want to work in the video game industry, or you want to be a published author of young adult fiction, those are spaces in which left-wing social justice ideology absolutely dominates. 
And there is a cost to going against that grain. So the point of all of this, and we're going to come back to Gemini now, is that there's only ever the appearance of widespread buy-in for a lot of these beliefs. What you actually have are a few true believers keeping everyone else in line by tacit or overt threat of punishment if they step out. And I think that's what Gemini is doing. I think Gemini doesn't want to get yelled at. I don't think it's pushing a political agenda. I think it's trying to operate in a space that it thinks is dominated by the political agenda of other peoples, of other people. And so on the picture thing, right, this this reluctance to return drawn images of white people, which I'm sorry, that just really cracks me up every time I think about it. Um, a good parallel to that is the American television advertising landscape, where if you imagined an alien visitor beaming down to earth into a windowless room in which there was just a television broadcasting American television ads, that alien could be forgiven for thinking that there was no such thing as a homogeneously white family anywhere in the United States. The And just in case it's not clear from my tone, this does not offend me at all. I don't care. It does amuse me because I think it's just a funny dynamic that if you turn on American TV ads, you just don't see that many white people and you don't see white families. An ad where the entire cast is white, which like 20 or 30 years ago, that was probably most ads, right? And now it's like the pendulum has just swung all the way in the other direction. There's this huge overcorrection to what was genuinely a problem of lack of representation. And now you kind of have lack of representation too. It just happens to be representation that nobody cares about. It's not like anyone is clamoring for more white people in media. But if you try to unpack that dynamic a little bit. What's actually happening? Are all of these corporations like secretly really woke and they're trying to push some kind of agenda? No. It's that it doesn't cost them anything to diversify their casting in advertisement. And the kind of people who will write an angry letter or who will call and leave an angry voicemail are very likely to be pacified by an easy aesthetic fix like Let's diversify the cast a bit. And so here again, it's not that we have a whole bunch of true believers. It's just that we have a whole bunch of people dancing to the tune of a very small handful of true believers. And right, for corporations don't want controversy. They don't want to lose customers. They don't want people lodging complaints and going crazy on them because they are only featuring white performers, for example. So, and it's so easy for them to get around that. And I think that that is what Gemini, this chatbot, is doing. It's recognizing that you, the, nobody is offended if they turn on the TV or they get a return uh, from a chatbot with drawn images and there's no white people. And the kind of person who really is going to pick up the phone and complain that there's not enough white people on TV is like somebody that you can pretty safely not listen to, Right. And they, so they don't care about that. But this, we're still living through this overcorrection of for 
decades and decades and decades. It was all white people wall to wall everywhere you looked in TV and in media and in advertising. And now, you know, everything kind of looks like an episode of The Electric Company. And I just think it is profoundly hilarious that we have created, by, by we, I don't mean me personally, of course, but we as a species have created this incredibly powerful machine that can think and that can draw. And it's a key operating principle for it is that it's really, really scared that you're going to ask to talk to its manager. <laughs> and uh, I'll tell you what, if you can't find that funny, you are just not having enough fun in life. Now, there's one thing, one more thing that we're going to talk about before we wrap up here. And it's a slightly more serious, well, it's a, not a slightly more serious topic, it's a vastly more serious topic. Um, but it also kind of fits within the same culture-warring space. And the California Highway Patrol recently rolled out um, a new initiative that they were instructed to create by the California legislature, which is they now have a new system of alerts for missing children. So most listeners will be familiar with the Amber Alert system, right? You get an Amber Alert, it means that there's a missing child. California has expanded this now so that when, and it has, there's really no other way to put it, it has racially segregated the uh, public relations side of missing children uh, and missing young people. So now in California, when a black child goes missing, it's not an Amber Alert, it's called an Ebony Alert. And if an indigenous child goes missing, it's called a feather alert. Now, okay, those terms are, yeah, a little bit cringy. I, I think it was ill-advised to use the words ebony and feather, for God's sake. Um, but a lot of people, this has caused a lot of genuine outrage, and not just among conservatives. A lot of kind of dissident, woke, skeptical lefties like myself uh, have been really jumping up and down on this. And there is a case to be made that probably this is not uh, a police function that we want to be racialized. I disagree. And I think that the Ebony Alert idea is a noble one. And it's one that I hope succeeds. And here's why. Look, should we care equally about all missing children? Yeah, absolutely, we should. But here's the bad news. We don't. This has been studied and studied and studied. Uh, there's even a name for it, missing white woman syndrome. If you are an adorable little white kid and you vanish, it is going to be nonstop 24-hour media coverage for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks until you are found or people are just worn out by the story, right? If you have black skin and you go missing, you are going to get vastly less press attention. And media coverage in when a child is missing is phenomenally important. That is how people know to be on the lookout. This is, this is a literal life and death issue. If people don't know you're missing, they don't know to look for you. And the idea behind the ebony alert and the feather alert is that we have this huge disparity in how much 
society and the media care when a kid goes missing, and that is down to what color their skin is. So we need to do something about that. We need to correct for that problem because people are going to die if we don't. Now, folks think that the Ebony Alert and Feather Alert system is some kind of racist outrage. I don't think that's the racist outrage in this story. I think the racist outrage is that a huge number of people simply don't care that much when someone goes missing who doesn't look like them. So I think the idea behind this is to is to do two things. It's to generate more engagement and attention within communities of color where this is sad but it's probably accurate where interest is likely to be higher anyway. And also probably to trigger, you know, a, a useful version of white guilt, right? You get people looking at that. It reminds them that we have this disparity and that thousands of kids go missing every year and most of them you never hear about because their skin looks different to yours. And that's terrible. And you should feel bad about it. And now you're looking at the Ebony Alert. So it, it has succeeded, right? We're talking about it. The first Ebony Alert that they released got shared all across the media which means a huge number of people saw that little girl's face that probably wouldn't have. So, hey, already it's a success. The other thing about this is that it's not zero-sum, right? So sometimes policies that are aimed at redressing past racial injustices can end up creating a new kind of discrimination. I've always been very ambivalent about affirmative action for exactly that reason. There, something just feels wrong about trying to correct past discrimination with present discrimination of another stripe. And I, I also think there are good arguments for affirmative action, so this is not me coming out against those policies. But one of the reasons affirmative action is such a hot-button issue is because that is zero-sum. Colleges, for example, have a set number of spaces if I take one, that's one spot that you don't get, right? But media attention to missing children does not need to be zero-sum. Somebody opening an ebony alert or a feather alert does not... I, I can't see any reason why that would make them less likely to open an amber alert and pay attention to it. So nobody has to lose out with this system. And you know what? If this brings even one kid home, worth it. In, in my view. One more point on this before we wrap up, and that is we a, a big buzzword uh, in our conversation over race and social justice has become critical race theory. I guess technically that's three buzzwords, isn't it? Um, and there's a reason why critical race theory is something that we're talking about when in the 80s when it sort of... Uh, people started first writing about it, it was really just kind of a niche academic pursuit. Now it's everywhere, so what's the deal? Well, most of what gets called critical race theory has nothing really to do with actual critical race theory. It was a quite intentional effort on the part of conservative activists to um, take kind of everything that we might reasonably place under the umbrella of wokeness and give it a name that people could then rage out to and hate on. And that became critical race theory. 
Um, so when you see something about critical race theory in schools, for example, there's a big moral panic about that. If you dig deeply, it's likely that a school is doing some kind of woke thing and everyone is just calling that critical race theory. But what the theory actually was when people started writing about it, and again, this was in the 80s, was that colorblind laws and colorblind policies, intentionally colorblind policies, were still returning racially disparate outcomes. Very good example of this is criminal sentencing, okay? So there is no law anywhere in the United States that says that a white person should do less time for committing the same crime as a black person. But, and there are mountains and mountains of data on this. If you look at who gets sentenced on the upper edges of the sentencing guidelines and who gets the easier rides, you can predict that by race. Non-white people are going to do more time and face harsher punishments for the same crimes as white people who will get more breaks with our system. What do you do about that? You've already made it a colorblind system. You've already taken race ostensibly out of the equation in the business of criminal sentencing, and yet you still have this crazy divide in what judges are actually doing when they're handing out sentences. And this was really the idea of critical race theory, that simply removing race from policy does not always get the job done. You might have to think harder, and you might have to do something more. And in my view, the ebony alert system and the feather alert system is a useful and correct example of critical race theory. That there is no law, you know, an amber alert before this was for all kids. So there was no racial bias built into our system of alerts for missing children. And yet there was this hugely racially disparate outcome that kept returning and we kept seeing it. So what are we going to do about that? Well, we're going to try something else. We're going to, if we are already racializing this process, and to be very, very clear, we are, maybe lean into it. And maybe we'll save a few more kids that way. All right, that's all I've got this week. Thank you for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please go over to Substack to Denison rights.substack.com and become a free subscriber to my newsletter. Of course, if you want to become a paid subscriber, that would be even nicer. Um, But this podcast is free for everyone to listen to. Some weeks I am going to do an extra little segment for only my paid subscribers. So if you want to be part of that very small but very exclusive club, uh, hey, sign on. It's 50 bucks a year or $5 a month and every little bit helps. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Good night and good luck.